say welcome to you. Thank you so much for joining us. We are continuing on a series that we started off uh, several weeks ago. And just to give you a little heads up, this is the final one for this year. This is going to continue into 2018. Um, so we're going we're we're to break it down here because Christmas is coming and we're not going to get to wrath and all that at, at Christmas time. Although Black Friday would not have been a bad idea, but that's a whole different story. So we're going to take a pause in the series right now and we're going to continue in, in January. And we've got a Christmas series coming up, which I'm really excited about as well, too. But for now, we're going to continue on the series. But let's recap what we've talked about. The series is called The Seven. And what we're really looking to do is walk through the seven deadly sins. And we've talked throughout the series about where these seven sins came from and, and where the origins were and why they are actually beneficial for us, even though we're hundreds of years displaced from when this concept was first introduced, that it actually has some benefit to us. Because what we're really saying is these are seven areas of our heart, of desires, of things within us that can keep us from God. And whichever way you want to look at it, that's actually a really good conversation. Uh, last time we were together, we talked about this idea of greed. And we said that greed is an inappropriate attitude towards things of value built on the mistaken judgment that my well-being is tied to the sum of my possessions. So we said that greed is really something that goes beyond just simply saying, I have to have more. My worth is attached to the things that I own. We talked about how greed is really the hidden thief. That your desire for more things never is satiated. It's never gratified. You always want more. There's the newest technology. There's this newest thing. or it, it never ends. Remember we talked about if you've ever moved from an apartment or a dorm room into, uh, into a, a bigger home. You, th- you walk into the house or you walk into the place and you're going, how am I going to fill this place up, right? Fast forward six months later, you've run out of room again right? You've accumulated more stuff, right? So we, we never seem to get off this treadmill uh, uh, of stuff. We talked about this idea of uh, 2 Corinthians 9, 6 to 8, and it's, and it's this concept that Paul talks about. And actually, it's a concept the Bible talks about time and time again. It's this, whatever you give, whatever you sow, that's a concept, right? God will take that and will multiply it for your benefit, or it can also be towards your detriment as well, too. Right? And so this idea of generosity is what we talked about in regards to greed. That's what we talked about last week. It's funny. I was telling a pastor friend of mine about the series I did, and I said, we talked about greed. He goes, oh, did you do the offering afterwards? And I'm like, no, I didn't. He goes, well, why not? I'm like, I, I never thought about that. He's like, well, that's what you got to do. You do a series on greed. You do the offering out. I'm like, ah, you know, we're not here to manipulate people. Ah, we've got text to give. Ah. Anyways, so the idea was this, that, you know, like generosity is meant to be our, our, our stance. But in the culture that we have, we are always looking for more. One of the reasons why we're looking at the seven deadly sins, there's a great book um, by, by, by Rebecca DeYoung, and she kind of went back and looked at this idea of the seven deadly sins, and she says this about them. The seven deadly sins are things that perennially tempt us because they look like fulfillment, and we can get them for ourselves. They are a kind of do-it-yourself happiness project. And I think she's actually correct you know, in that, that we look at these different types of sins, we look at these different types of, 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 of fallenness, and we say, ooh, I could make myself happy with that. You know the feeling, right? You've gone out and you've purchased something new. New is great, right? New is fantastic. New feels great. New gives you confidence. New makes you go, wow, right? But new fades. New doesn't seem as shiny. New doesn't seem to kind of gratify us the first time we had it. And so we are always looking for the next new. 
right? And that's what the seven deadly sins are, is this idea of gratifying our desires. Uh, Tito Collender had this book called The Way of the Ascetics, and we'll come back to uh, this uh, towards the end there. But he says this, we overcome after a fashion, perhaps, our serious and dangerous vices, but there it stops. The small desires we freely let grow as they will. We neither embezzle nor steal, but delight in gossiping. We don't drink, but consume immoderate quantities of tea and coffee instead. Can I get an amen? Um, the heart remains quite full of appetites. The roots are not pulled out, and we wander around in the tangled woods that have sprung up in the soil of our self-pity. So what's interesting is, is that we can look and we can say, I'm a good person. I haven't killed anybody. And remember, that's our metric in our culture of whether you're a good person, whether you've murdered somebody, which again, it seems kind of a weird way to look at it, but that's what people say. But what he's saying, and I think it's absolutely true, is we look at some sins and we kind of say, like, these are really bad. So I'm not going to do those. So I'm a good person. But my heart is full of other things. And these things keep pulling me down. Right, it's, 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 it's like the death of a thousand cuts, right? It's not the one uh, thrust of a sword, but it's like the little tiny cuts that kind of bleed us to death. And that's what the seven deadly sins are. And in some ways we can kind of say, well, that's not so bad. Therefore, it's okay for me to participate in it. But what we're really saying is, well, I don't want to hurt people or kill people or embezzle or steal, but I may just actually kind of use all my resources for myself. I, I may not actually have time for other people. I may not actually, and the list goes on. And what the seven deadly sins is kind of reveals to us, it shows to us like, you know what? Perhaps we aren't as um, noble, generous, charitable as perhaps we once thought. This morning, we're going uh, to look at this idea of gluttony. Now, I love that video there about this idea of pleasure. I am uh, fascinated by this, uh, this concept of pleasure and happiness in our culture because it seems as if we have full-on taken this idea of hedonism, and I'll explain to you what that means in a moment, but this, uh, this pursuit of pleasure has become the all-encompassing desire of our hearts. And we're actually going to take a test, and we're going to take a test to see how many of you in this room are actually hedonists and don't even know it. Uh, that'll, that'll, that'll come after we kind of talk a little bit. So this idea is simply this. We call ourselves good people. We say we are all these things, but if we actually kind of drill down, we realize, oh, I actually am not. So remember last week we talked about generosity. I told you that according to Stats Canada for 2015, the average Canadian gave 0.81% of their annual income to charity. 0.81. That includes churches, by the way. 0.81. That was what the average Canadian gave to, no, to charitable uh, organizations last in 2015. I couldn't find one for 2017, 2016, so... There you go. But I, I, I imagine that the statistic hasn't really changed that much. And people say we're generous. But are we? Right? Are we really? And, and how do you have that? Remember, the seven deadly sins is a diagnostic tool to look into our hearts as an external way of saying, are we really what we think we are? Or perhaps maybe are we wearing a mask or, or kidding ourselves or fooling ourselves? So we're going to talk about gluttony. But let's define gluttony for a second because it's not what you think it is. When I first thought about gluttony, I thought, okay, I'm going to get a cooking show video or I'm going to talk all about food and, and all that. But actually, when I began to study gluttony, I realized something. It's actually not about food in itself. And I'll explain to you this. So the word gluttony comes from the Latin word glutire, meaning to gulp down or swallow and is understood to mean overindulgence and overconsumption of food, drink, or wealth to the point of extravagance or waste. So what we say with gluttony is that it's not just simply about food. 
It's not about your consumption of food because some of you in this room, and by some of you, I mean students, your diet consists of ramen and, and KFC or, 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 or not KFC, like, well, that'd be great protein. No, we're, uh, we're talking about uh, uh, macaroni and cheese, right? Like that's, that's your diet. I remember um, when I went to seminary, the food was quite bland. And so I used to have these, like, these spicy noodles, those uh, shimram yum noodles. I, I love those. Those are my amazing. So, you know, you would just, you would just douse that with, with hot sauce, and that would, would get me through the cafeteria food, right? But that was my staple for a long time. And by the way, don't eat those for too long. The sodium content is through the roof on those things. So a little, little, little spoiler right there. But the idea is this, that you can look at gluttony and say, well, I'm not gluttonous. First of all, I don't have enough money. So I can't be gluttonous. And, and two, I, you know, I work. If you look at gluttony that way, again, just like this series, you can say, well, that's not me. But let's take a look at another way of looking at gluttony. Uh, Chris Donato says this about gluttony. Two mistakes accompany most discussions on gluttony. The first is that it only pertains to those with a less than shapely waistline. Cough, cough. The second is that it always involves food. In reality, it can apply to toys, television, entertainment, sex, or relationship. It is about excess of anything. Suddenly, we move the gluttony category from food to this is kind of all of us now. Gluttony, when it was first introduced, was about food. Why was it about food? Is because for the common people, that's really all you could overindulge. You couldn't overindulge in any other way because you are the peasant class. Again, remember, Middle Ages, early Middle Ages, this is what we're talking about. But today, that concept behind gluttony wasn't about food consumption. It was overindulgence. It was excess. And what it was really about excess was things that, made, that, that were pleasurable. This idea of hedonism. Now, the video you saw there uh, is one of those TED Talk ones, one of those TED video teaching videos. And the whole idea behind it was to look at this concept of hedonism. Now, let me first define to you what hedonism and give you a little brief history of hedonism. Because before we can talk about gluttony, we have to kind of talk about what hedonism is. Before I define it, let me kind of give you a little bit of a history. Um, his, uh, hedonism comes from this. Aristophanes of Cyrene, a, pup, uh, uh, a pupil of Socrates, taught that the goal of life was to seek pleasure by adapting circumstances to oneself and by maintaining proper control over both adversity and prosperity. This sounds like a tweet, uh, a tweet you'd hear today. Uh, this sounds like a show you'd hear today, but it actually comes from the fourth century. By the way, Socrates hated this guy. At one point in time, he was quoted as saying, you should find all of Aristippus' uh, teachings and burn them. Right? Like Socrates hated uh, what, what his, one of his students took his teachings and extended it. But this guy said, basically, the goal of life is to enjoy yourself. Because I feel better when I enjoy myself. And if I feel better when I enjoy myself, isn't that a good thing? Isn't that really what, we, what we're designed to have is, is this pursuit of pleasure? The Romans, of course, when they uh, conquered Greece in 146 BC, BC, they kind of took this to the next level. Pleasure became an empire-wide obsession. Marcus Aurelius found it necessary to reduce the number of religious celebrations per year to a modest 135. You think Christmas, Easter, Valentine, you think that's a lot? The Romans had 135. And just so you know, the Romans partied like nobody's business. Like we are talking days upon days upon days, right? During the six centuries of Roman rule, hedonism and decadence reached such heights that the subsequent fall of the empire was blamed on excess. If you study books on the rise and fall of the Roman Empire, they will say the same thing, that towards the end of the Roman Empire, it became so 
overindulgent in food and, and luxury and all these type of things that the weight of it, you couldn't, you, they couldn't afford to pay the armies anymore. Why? Because the emperors were just lavishing banquets upon banquets. And of course, then the armies turned against them and that was the end of all things. Here's what hedonism is. Hedonism can be defined as a way of life which treats pleasure as the ultimate good. Okay, hedonism is applied as, as pleasure is the ultimate good. And if pleasure is the ultimate good, anything that is pleasing, anything that is pleasurable, this is hedonism, but really the root of it is, is gluttony. And I'm going to show you a scripture in a second where I kind of, I, I was actually going a different direction, but when I kind of researched this one scripture, I'm like, oh, it's actually going this way. If I was to say to you, what, what word characterizes our culture most? You could use different types of things, especially in the, in, the, in the reality that we live in right now. But one thing I think you can really say is that everybody just seems to be looking for something to make them happy. Something to kind of please them, give them pleasure. We are in a, a forward launch into pleasure. Right? There has never been more cooking shows. I've never seen more things of, of making kale taste good, which I don't think it can. I'm pretty sure kale is just painted cardboard. I'm not sure about that, but uh, I, I am. There's a study out on that right now, and I'll, I'll get back to you. But the idea is this, that we have show after show about food, about like, your home and your decorations, and these are all good things. But it's getting to the point of excess now. Where we almost say, now, you know, I, I, have to, I have to have this experience. I have to have this thing or else my life feels bland. That's hedonism. Isaac Asimov actually had kind of something to say about this. And Isaac Asimov, the famous scientific, science fiction writer, but also a bit of a philosopher. He says this, it is a mistake to suppose that the public wants the environment protected or lives saved and that they will be grateful to any idealist who will fight for such ends. What the public wants is their own individual comfort. And I think he's actually right. Sometimes we talk about the environment, we talk about rights, we talk about all these type of things, but what we really care about the most, am I happy? Am I pleased? Am I pleasurable? Are these things so, like, that's what I want. And so any savvy politician can talk about different types of things on the surface, but what they're really saying is, if you vote for me, I'll make you happy. I'll make you happy. And that's what goes, oh, that's my vote right there because I want to be happy because pleasure has become our ultimate good. Um, I've referenced uh, a writer uh, a few times in a book a couple of times, uh, but I want to change the context a little bit. Um, so in 1985, Neil Postman, uh, former uh, NYU uh, media professor, uh, I would say he was prophetic in the sense of how he looked at the future, wrote a book called Amusing Ourselves to Death. By the way, over the Christmas break, one of the best books you will ever read. Uh, it, is, it is an extraordinary book, and it is prophetic on its insight. Remember, he wrote this in 1985 before the advent of the internet. And this is what he says. Americans, in brackets Christians, going to apply this to Christians, no longer talk to each other. They entertain each other. They do not exchange ideas. They exchange images. They do not argue with propositions. They argue with good looks, celebrities, and commercials. He's writing this at 1985. Do you remember what TV was like back in 1985? It was ridiculous, right? It was neon colors. It was bad editing. It was like, you know, like even like all the type of special effects. It was like, it was horrible. But even back then, he realized something. That culture was, stop, was not talking anymore in regards to validity of ideas and, and all that. But he's saying, now what, what, how do we entertain each other? And I put really in brackets there, Christians, because I will say this to you today. 
Christianity, modern Christianity, resembles more a circus than it does an ancient transcendent faith. And we are now seeing a shift within Christianity from content to the Bible, to, to community, to faith, these things that we talk about at UCC a lot, to lights, camera, action. Look how good looking this person is. Look how skinny his jeans are. If they're any skinnier, he would not be able to walk around. I don't know. You get the idea, right? So this idea is that, you know, we, 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 we have now kind of full on into this idea of, 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 of entertainment in Christianity. Now, the reason I say that to you is that culture and society, they will go the direction they're going to go. It's when those of us who call ourselves Christ followers, when we start following their lead, that's when it's dangerous. He goes on to say this. When a population, in brackets, church, becomes distracted by trivia, when cultural life is redefined as perpetual round of entertainments, when serious public conversation becomes a form of baby talk, when, in short, a people become an audience, you've heard that before here at UCC, their, and their public business, a vaudeville act, then a nation finds itself at risk. Cultural death is clear, is a clear possibility. And again, I put that in brackets of saying, this is what the church is like today. We no longer talk about the Bible. We no longer talk about transcendence. Transcendence is supernatural. It's this idea. My Christmas series this year is going to be looking at the supernatural part of Christmas. Because one of the things we look at when we see the Christmas stories, we forget about all that was taking place behind the scenes. And in, 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 in reality, what we're going to be looking at is going to be looking at angels. It's going to be really a series on angelology. It's taking a look at how the Bible treats angels. So we're going to take a look at... All right, too much. It's, it's, it's going to be fun. Um, but the point is this. How did Christians become about how are we feeling about entertainment and production values and all the type of things? Now... We at UCC here, we try as much as possible to, to have things run smoothly, okay? So you can say that we do have a production value. There's a tipping point of saying, okay, where do we kind of say this is what's useful for uh, the Sunday morning experience or now we got, have gone a little bit too far? And that's, that's a great conversation to have. But the point is that we as Christians now are more about, we're more about being entertained than we are about growth and development and what the Holy Spirit wants to do in us. To the point now where churches will advertise in some very interesting ways. Uh, and I, I, again, I, it's, this is not about right or wrong or bad or good. It's just me saying, if we are transcendent, if we believe God to be true, if we believe the Bible to be true, then how we describe ourselves and what we really want to talk about should come into this idea of transcendence, of like, like going beyond what the culture is like. But when we start mimicking culture, and we start... Um, exemplifying it, it's like, okay, we may have lost, so we may have taken uh, a wrong uh, look there. When we talk about this idea of pleasure, there are, I think, four things that we need to re realize about pleasure or, and or hedonism. The first thing is that pleasure is God's gift. Now, the reason I had to put that on the very front part here is because I don't want you to think that we at UCC don't believe in pleasure because the fact is pleasure was for us. It was created for us. And in its proper context, it is absolutely what God wants for us. We see this in uh, Psalm 1611. It says this, You make known to me the path of life. You will fill me with joy in your presence, with eternal pleasure at your right hand. The word pleasure in the Hebrew that they uh, use there is simcha, which means mirth, gladness, joy, gaiety, pleasure. And this word is used quite often in the Old Testament. And not just about relationship with God, but in relationship with our surroundings, the reality. Pleasure was created for us. 
I love what Jeremiah 15 and 16 says. When your word came, I ate them. They were my joy and my heart's delight, for I bear your name, Lord God Almighty. We are meant to enjoy this world. We are meant to enjoy what God has created for us. Even this idea of intimacy between a man and woman, this is actually from God for us. But in the context that God has for it. And if we think of pleasure as a, as, as, as a means to an end, we start becoming, we start living in excess. So I need to kind of say that first and foremost, because I don't want you leaving here and going, oh, UCC, they're all kind of monastic or they're all kind of this. We are not, right? We are not, but... We have to say, how do we look at pleasure and how do we fit into it? So pleasure is God's gift. But we have to also say, too, that pleasure chokes life. Luke 8, 14 says this, and this is where I got this idea of hedonism. The seed that fell among the thorns stands for those who hear, but as they go on their way, they are choked by life's worries, riches, and pleasures, and they do not mature. The word that Luke uses here is hedone, where we get the word hedonistic. So what is Luke saying here? The third, the third seed falls in the soil that's full of pleasure. Now, one of the things you have to understand about the parable of the soils, or the parable of the sower as it's traditionally known, is Luke, or Jesus, when he's telling the story, sets it up, okay? What's going on here? The soil, that's the human heart. The seed, that's the word of God, right? The sower is somebody who could be the Holy Spirit, could be God, it could be anybody, but the word of God is going out. And each soil accepts the word, with different consequences. Well, the third soil is the seed does germinate because the first two times it doesn't. It gets in the soil, it, it, it gets the nutrients, and it grows, but it's choked. And what chokes the soil? What chokes the seed? Pleasures. The hedone. And what does the Bible say? They do not mature. And in this soil, you have a lot of immature baby Christians who are being choked out by Hedone. In James chapter 4, verse 2 to 3, it says, You desire, but you do not have, so you kill. You covet, you cannot get what you want, so you quarrel and fight. You do not have because you do not ask God. When you ask, you do not receive because you ask with wrong motives. What? That you may spend what you have, what you get on your Hedone, your pleasures. And if we think that our faith is all about the end result of pleasure in this life, we get uncomfortable when people talk about the opposite. So pleasure chokes out life. Pleasure is a false pursuit. In 2 Timothy 3, 1 to 5, Paul says this. Remember, the book of Timothy is an older pastor writing to a younger pastor in a place called Ephesus. Ephesus is a very uh, matriarchal uh, culture, uh, religious culture. In other words, Diana, Artemis, these type of deities are in Ephesus. That's why First Timothy has the language it does because that's the context that Paul's writing in. Well, in Second Timothy, Paul says this, but mark this, there'll be terrible times in the last days. People will be lovers of themselves, lovers of money, boastful, proud, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, without love, unforgiving, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not lovers of the good, treacherous, rash, and conceited. It's almost as if Paul hit the cinnamon, uh, cinnamon, uh, cinnamon, cinnamon, synonym. Thank you. I was just, I was almost there. Although the cinnamon one would have been fantastic too. The synonym button there, right? So basically what he's saying, okay, these are the individuals we're looking at, but what does he put there? At the very beginning of it, how does he start this series of sins? Lovers of themselves. And what does he say then? Lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. Having a form of godliness, but denying its power. Stop there for a second. Paul is saying something very important here. 
Pleasure makes you pursue yourself and makes your comfort, your happiness, the highest good. And sometimes in faith, God wants to use the discomfort of your life to grow you up. And we hate that. We hate the hobbits. I know we do, right? We, we hate that, right? We hate this idea that discomfort is when we mature the most. But God says, I can use pain. I can use suffering. I can use these things which happen in the normal context of life. I can use this to grow you up, to deepen you. But if all you're looking for is your own pleasure, every time these opportunities come, what do we do? We shake our fists at God. We say, how dare you? Uh, how can I go through this? I love you. I gave 0.81% of my, my, my annual income. Isn't that good enough? And in this moment, we forget about something. If our own pleasure is our highest good, we have a form of godliness, but deny its power. The power of God isn't about any manifestation that you can do. It's about what God wants to do inside of you. It's the transformation that he wants to do inside of you. And I can tell you right now, with personal experience, I hate this too. It is, it is happening in me right now. Well, not right this moment, but you get the idea, right? In my own life right now. It's like, it is happening in me right now. Right now. I am going through a time where it's like, ha, 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 Smite them, Lord, smite them. Right? We love that, right? I get a little testament when I, want to get, when I get angry, right? But the point is this. In these times of discomfort, in these times of pain, of suffering, of whatever it would be, God says, you know what? You have a form of godliness. You have a form of power. My power, my Holy Spirit, is not about smiting, but about transformation. And if you look to pleasure as your highest good, then you will hate me in these moments. But in these moments is when you grow up the most. Pleasure is a false pursuit. Pleasure replaces meaning. I was going to teach on Ecclesiastes this morning because this book is full of what this guy wants to talk about. Ecclesiastes chapter 2 verse 10 to 11 says this. I denied myself nothing my eyes desired. That almost sounds like a mission statement, right? This sounds like a mission statement for people's lives. I refused my heart no pleasure. I refused my heart no hedone. My heart took delight in all my labor, and this was the reward for my toil. Yet when I surveyed all that my hands had done and what I had toiled to achieve, everything was meaningless. A chasing after the wind, nothing was gained under the sun. Now, what I love about this is there's a phrase that pops up through Ecclesiastes time and time again. And the phrase is, Chasing after the wind. Do you think you'll ever catch it? No. Do you think that you're going to actually find it? Like, like, if I was to say to you right now, what would make, give you the most happiness right now? You could give me an answer, whatever it would be. But I guarantee you a month from now, it's not going to make you happy anymore. You are chasing the wind and you don't even realize it. And then you wonder why you're so dissatisfied, so anxious, so depressed, because you're like, I'm looking for meaning in something that I can never grasp. I am looking for pleasure in the wind. And the other phrase, and I taught this uh, a couple of years ago, back when we first started UCC. There's a phrase he uses. He says, under the sun. And the reason he uses that phrase, because how does he describe God? Above all things. So he uses this line, he draws this line in, in, in reality and says, okay, everything under the sun are things that are temporary, things you could pursue, things you can taste and touch and feel, but they'll all fade away. Who is above all things? God. 
Who will transcend all things? God. What will you transcend from this life to the transition, what we call death, into the next life? God. So why do you think pleasure is so important? Why do you think chasing the wind is so important? Pleasure replaces meaning. And obviously, pleasure replaces God. Philippians 3, 18 and 19 says this, for, I've, for as I've often told you before and now, uh, and now tell you again, even with tears, many live as enemies of the cross of Christ. That's interesting. Many live as enemies of cross of Christ. Why? Their destiny is destruction. Why? Their God is their stomach. And their glory is in their shame. Their mind is set on earthly things under the sun. So just to give you a little context with Philippians, the colony of Philippi was primarily Roman. When they have done archaeological digs on it, they have not found any synagogues. So we infer from that there wasn't much Jewish settlers there. So when Paul went into Philippi, it is strictly Gentiles, Greeks, Romans. Like that's people he's talking to. Remember, Philippi, the church of Philippi starts off in jail. Remember, Paul's in jail and they have a worship service. And it shakes them and frees them. And who's the first convert in Philippi? The jailer. He takes Paul home to his family and they all become Christ followers. They are the first church in Philippi. And the letter of Philippi, or what we call Philippians, is Paul reminding these Gentiles, listen, I know you're Romans. And I know you're at a, a number 126 of your religious festivals for the year. I know you got another nine more to go, right? But understand something. If your God is your stomach, there's no meaning in that. And you will replace God with the pleasures in your life. And if you replace God with the pleasures in your life, you are always chasing the wind. And so Paul says to the Philippi in the book of Philippians, says, listen, their God is their stomach. So now let's take a test. Are you a hedonist? Don't put your hands up, by the way. Just, just, just <laughs> mental. Don't even write it down because people are like, oh, yeah, that guy's right now. Okay, don't, okay? So I'm going to ask you one, two, three, four, five questions. And let's see how many you score on these five questions, all right? Here we go. First question. Do you look for experiences to make your life bearable? Do you live for the weekend? Do you judge an experience on how fun it was? Do you evaluate experiences based on how they make you feel? Are you frequently bored with normal life? Don't answer. Let me unpack these for you for a second. Oh, by the way, I took these questions from a narcissist uh, questionnaire and, and modified them a little bit. Spoiler alert. Uh, so question number one, do you look for experiences to make your life bearable? Do you find yourself in your life going, oh, I'm just living for that vacation I've got planned four months from now. I'm living for that concert. I'm living for that this thing. I'm living for that thing. If I could just make through this mundane part of life and live for that, you are displacing meaning from today and what God has for you and you're looking for meaning from experience. That's how hedonists live. Second, do you live for the weekend? Insert your own joke there. Do you live for the weekend? I used to work retail. I used to manage a clothing store. And I will tell you quite clearly, my, my staff lived for the weekends. They did. Because the, the, the Monday to Friday, and again, not that retail is exciting and all that. It's, I, I had fun. My staff, maybe not as much so, but I, I had fun, right? But it's, it is what it is. It's a job, and it is a paycheck, and we all have to do things perhaps we don't necessarily want to because we want to live. At least this is what I tell my kids. So, you know, this is, this is how we live, right? But if you look to the weekend to escape the drudgery of everyday life, 
What you are basically saying is the mission field that God has you in is, not, is meaningless. And you wish you were elsewhere. And you stop looking at the experiences and relationships you have in your life as meaningful. You're chasing the wind. Do you judge an experience and how fun it was? I had fun in church today. I didn't have fun in church today. I had fun in school today. I didn't have fun in school today. Do you want me to keep going? You get the point, right? If we think of fun and happiness as the ultimate metric of whether an experience was enjoyable, we are really saying to ourselves, I'd like to be plugged into that uh, pleasure machine, please. I'd like to check out from reality. Are we surprised that addictions have skyrocketed? Self-medication, in other words? That's how we escape reality. Are you frequently, uh, sorry, do you evaluate experiences based on how they make you feel? Now, I'm going to explain that one for you. Because for some of you, like, well, yeah, is that wrong? No, it's not wrong. But feelings aren't the only way you evaluate an experience. You have to say to yourself, what is it more than that? Like, is there something spiritual, something mental? Like, like there are three parts of you. So, like, you have to evaluate experiences in, in, in a different way. Finally, are you frequently bored with normal life? And you get that one. Now, historically, the church has actually answered the question about hedonism, but they've gone the opposite direction. Let me introduce you to the life of monasticism. Now, remember I told you about asceticism? We're going to come back to that. Let me explain what these words mean. Monasticism, asceticism, and monasticism are two religious disciplines designed to de-emphasize pleasures of the world so that the practitioner can concentrate on the spiritual life. Both asceticism and monasticism have been adopted by worshipers of various faiths. In general, asceticism is the practice of strict self-denial as a means of attaining a higher spiritual plane. Monasticism is a state of being secluded from the world in order to fulfill religious vows. So two things, right? Asceticism says, you know what? I'm going to sleep on a rock with no heat, with no blanket, and that'll show how devoted I am to God. There was a guy named Simon Stylites. He lived on top of a pillar. I'm not even kidding. And he was living on top of this pillar to show his devotion to God, to separate himself from the world, but also to kind of hurt himself a little bit so that he could show his devotion. His followers would take baskets up to feed him. He would bake in the sun, drench in the rain, and he didn't leave to go to the bathroom. Just insert your own image there. But the idea is simply this, is he did this so that he could escape the world and show that he was trying to escape pleasures of life. And we say to ourselves, I don't know if that's what God intended either. And so historically, the church has gone the other direction and said, you know what? Aestheticism is kind of a way of saying, let's, let's hurt ourselves. Let's, there was even a, um, a practice of it. And if you've ever watched um, The Da Vinci Code, right, you'll see the guy whipping himself. Right? Like, like, and then that was a way of, of inflicting pain so that you can not feel as much pleasure. And again, misguided. The Bible never says to whip yourself, to hurt yourself, to punish yourself. Right? So the church has gone the opposite direction. So what is the balance? What is the balance in this? Well, I think a guy named Jason Lisk has kind of an interesting way of talking about it. He says this. It was not only moderation that is a solid weapon against the sin of gluttony. We also make use of another the practice of fasting. Fasting does not only mean giving up certain foods, i.e. red meats on Fridays, but also giving up on many other things that we love for the love of Christ in order to ma- maintain our gaze solely on him. So what Jason is saying is simple. He says, listen, gluttony exists. The overindulgence in this world exists. So for a period of time, to show that nothing has mastery over you, 
Give it up. Give it up. You've heard of Lent. I gave this up for Lent. That is the basis of fasting. He goes on to say this. Um, but it might be asked, why write so many alarmingly, so alarmingly of such meaningless, harmless things? This is an interesting thing about gluttony. Simply because gluttony engenders love of pleasure and many other passions as well. It is a root from which the rest of the passions spring up in vigorous growth. He was quoting Augustine there. In other words, if we indulge our bodies in such a ways as I have mentioned above, we will find that the sins of lust and greed will not be far behind. These two are indulgences of the body. So what is he saying here? Gluttony is a sin that we all think is pretty simple. He says, and many other commentators and writers say too, that if you connect to gluttony, you open the door for pleasures that will come into your life. And again, he talks about lust and greed there, but there are others. His idea was, can we go back to this concept saying, can we, get, can we use something in our lives to be able to maintain over other parts? And he's fasting. Let me close with a passage of scripture from Acts 13. One of the things I try to do as a pastor, and we talk about this at UCC, is we try to be a New Testament church, whatever that means. But what we want to do is we want to go back in the New Testament and say, what do they do? Remember, the New Testament church existed in the most hostile time against Christianity, but exploded in growth and no greater time, right? So remember, um, in Acts chapter 1, there's 120 Christians. Acts chapter 2, there's 3,120 Christians. By the year 300, the, the most conservative estimate is that there are over 10 million Christians across the Roman Empire. And this is through the Diocletian persecution. This is in, this is in times where hundreds of thousands of Christians were tortured brutally and, and, and killed for their faith. And yet people are like, I want to serve Jesus. Take my life? Yes! But just give me Jesus. Oh, love that. Look what Acts 13 says. Now in the church at Antioch, there were prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Manan, who had been brought up with Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. While they are worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. So after they had fasted and prayed, they placed their hands on them and they set them off. One of the things that's interesting about this particular verse is fasting was a regular part of the early Christian life. They just did it. Because they thought to themselves, if I can have mastery over food or over indulgences, I can have mastery over other things as well too. And so part of their worship was fasting. They said, you know what? Let's just give up food. As a matter of fact, we have first century documents. These are documents written about 135, where the, where the church would do this. Hey, we're going to come together for communion, which is like sharing a meal. Oh, wait, not everyone can, not, not, we don't have enough food for everybody? Okay, we're going to fast until we, we've gathered enough food for everyone to eat. And when everyone has eaten or we've got enough food, then we'll eat together. That's how much they loved one another. That they're willing to let go and willing to get rid of, uh, of their pleasure of food so that everybody can be taken care of. What would happen if you gave up one cup of coffee a week and took that money and did something with it? One meal, wine, pizza, chicken wings, right here. I'll answer that altar call, right? What would, you, what would happen if you could give something like that up and take that money or take that resource or take that time and invest it in somebody else? What would your life look like? Well, it wouldn't be a life of pursuing after pleasure. What would it look like if you said, you know what, today I'm not going to eat 
Instead, I'm going to take this time to worship and pray. I want to hear from the Lord. And so I'm going to give up social media. You're like, oh, please, I'll give up food first for that, right? I'm going to give up social media for the day just because I want to be concentrating on the Lord. I want to pray. I want to really focus on him. I want to give up food. I want to give up whatever it would be. What would it look like if you could say to yourself, I'm going to give this part of my life up so that I could concentrate deeper on what God wants? This is how we overcome pleasure. It's not by indulging in it, but in saying, I'm actually going to deny myself for a period of time so that I can further focus in on God. And also, so that nothing will master me. No addiction, no impulse, no anything that I do, it will not master me. Why? Because I will give it up and I will show the Lord that he's the center of my life, that I, everything that I have is for him and I will give everything up for him. That is what, that is the answer to gluttony. And it is far more difficult than we make it out simply, but it's a spiritual discipline that we can enact in our lives right now so that we can overcome it. Let's pray.